morning, we'll begin reading in verse 3 and read through verse 6. Brethren, let's hear the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Amen. <clears throat> we can say heartily, Thus saith the Word of God. O oh, brethren, we continue in our series this evening, By Grace Ye Are Saved. <clears throat> this has been some uh, fairly informal, not terribly structured studies uh, regarding these subjects, but I trust that they've been uh, at least clear and helpful. And uh, we come tonight to a very uh, important subject that we take up once again, where we left off last week, in the doctrine of election. Brethren, as I trust you began to uh, recognize last week, if you had not seen this before, that there is an extraordinary mass of biblical evidence regarding the fact that God chooses. He chooses people. He chooses places. And when He chooses people, <clears throat> it is either to service in some way or to salvation. We just did something of a bird's eye view survey last week, but we, we saw that the Father chose His Son to be the Lord and Savior of His people. He chose Abraham to be the father of an elect seed. Israel to be His covenant people. The apostles to be the foundation of the church. <clears throat> Paul, <clears throat> as the apostle to the Gentiles. Judas, as Christ's betrayer. And many other individuals to various important roles. Even the very witnesses who saw the Lord Jesus after His resurrection. Now in this study, uh, we take up the subject we left off, uh, where we left off last week. Uh, looking at the testimony of the Word of God to God's election of individuals to salvation. We'll look at some of the more important passages tonight. Of course, none of these things can be exhaustive. We don't have enough time. Any of these passages uh, could be an entire uh, series of studies themselves because they are so rich in vital biblical doctrine. But we just want to hit some of the, the points most important to our present study. And we begin with the passage which we read this evening. And from it, we take our title for this evening's study, He Hath Chosen Us in Him. Very important six words. He hath chosen us in Him. Now, again, Paul is not in the, what we call the didactic portion of his epistle yet, the, that portion where he is teaching. Uh, he's simply offering up praise at the introduction of his letter here. He is praising and blessing God. His heart is filled with joy at this thought, and he is rejoicing and drawing those of his readers into that joy and celebration of his subject. And what is it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us. Now let's stop and do a little grammatical thinking here. We want to look at the subject. That's uh, the one that does the action. We want to look at the verb. That's the action. We want to look at the direct objects. The objects receive the action of the verb that the subject's doing. Now this is 
important. We need to understand exactly what's being said here because we're going to look at a few objections to our doctrine tonight. And the very grammar overthrows those objections. So, right here, Paul is exploding in praise, rejoicing and celebrating the fact that God, the subject, blessed, that's the verb, us. That's believers. That's not everybody. That's believers. He's talking to the Ephesians, but quite obviously this applies to anyone who has repented of his sins and come in saving faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In Christ. <clears throat> all of these blessings, as a matter of fact, this can be <clears throat> translated in the heavenlies. In the heavenlies. God has blessed us in the heavenlies. Spiritual blessings in the person of Christ. <clears throat> According. Here are those blessings. They're in accordance with something. They're in harmony with something. They regard something that God has done. And it says here, According as He, the subject, hath chosen, that's the verb, us, people, believers, God has chosen believers. <clears throat> when? He's going to tell us. In Him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ again, before the foundation of the world. Notice that in both verses, God's the subject doing the action. The action is blessing, and the blessing is according to His choosing. The blessings spoken of are to those who He has chosen. Everybody with me on that? And us, the Ephesians, believers down through the ages, have those blessings in Christ. They're all in Christ. Glory to God. We can say that with Paul, can't we? He's saying, blessed be. We ought to say, blessed be He. Amen. Now, <clears throat> he says that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. This is a loving act to bestow all these blessings upon us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. The people that are chosen, us, are chosen before creation before the existence of these earthly things. Now, <clears throat> it's unto a purpose that uh, we should be holy and without blame. Brethren, that's not the way we are naturally. I'm not holy in myself. Neither are you. I am to be blamed in myself. How in the world can we ever be considered blameless? This is part of the blessings that we have in the heavenlies, in Christ. Which ultimately showed itself in what God accomplished for us in Christ, in history. In Christ before the foundation of the world, and through Christ in history, as he's going to tell us here. <clears throat> Having predestinated us unto us, once again... Who's the subject? God. What's the verb? Predestinated. What's the direct object? Receiving the action of the verb. Us, believers. <clears throat> Unto the adoption of children. This ultimately, again, points back to what we're calling the blessings that we have in Christ, given to us in Him before the foundation of the world. We are adopted into God's family. That speaks of the fact that we weren't in His family. To be adopted means you weren't in the family to begin with. But by an act of someone other than yourself, 
you have now been brought into the family. Now, I want to pound something home here at the, at the risk of being uh, overly repetitious. It's good for us at certain points. Who's the subject of all of these verbs? It is God. Who's doing all of this? It is God. Who's receiving all of this? His people. And that's why he's praising the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father. Blessed be the God and Father. He has predestinated us. He has marked out the boundaries beforehand for us unto that adoption, that being brought into His family by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one in whom and through whom we have all of these things. In verse after verse after verse. Blessings through Christ, chosen in Christ, adopted into the family, by Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. How is it that we are adopted and brought into the family of God? His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace. And brethren, this is why this is grace. It's all of God's action. We receive His mercy. It's not our works. It is His glorious work in Christ before the foundation of the world, and then manifested in time and space and history. It's given in Christ, and all of these blessings flow to us through Christ, and it goes from eternity into time, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. In Christ. He, the subject, hath made, the verb, us, accepted in the Beloved. How did we get into the state of God receiving us? How could we ever get to the state where we would be considered holy and without blame before God? Well, it was in His love, through Christ, having blessed us with all spiritual blessings, including choosing us in Him, and then adopting us into His family. Now we can look at verse 7, where it says, In whom, meaning Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. We see the word grace over and over and over. Uh, And all of this pointing to the mercies that we have in Christ, given to us, in Him before the foundation of the world. And that's where we want to focus. He hath chosen us. That choosing, beginning before the foundation of the world, is experienced in time and space and history as we are adopted into His family. As His Spirit comes to us and opens our eyes, opens our hearts so that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and lay hold of that glorious redemption in His blood. Notice it says, in whom we have. Now we haven't done anything there, we just possess something. (laughs) We don't do something, so to speak, in, in this particular verse. It's just saying, this is our possession. How is it that we have this possession? All of these blessings these heavenly blessings in Christ started before the foundation of the world. We have it now in Christ, experienced in time and space in history. He chose us. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter two. <clears throat> Paul writes in verse 13, But we are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you. Well, there he is praising God again. (laughs) Thanking God 
Blessed be God. Thank you, God. Now, what's he thanking God for? Well, he's thanking him for those people. Well, the Thessalonians were pagans. <clears throat> what's there to be thankful for about pagans? Well, these pagans had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They had repented of their sins, and they had been formed into assemblies by the power of the Holy Spirit and the calling of the Gospel. And this is the way Paul puts it. We thank God always, excuse me, we give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord. I don't know if there is a more precious thing that can be said of a human being. Brethren, beloved of the Lord. I mean, God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And now that term is being applied to us. To believers. Beloved of the Lord, because... Here's why we're giving God thanks. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. God hath chosen. What's the subject of the verb? God. What's the verb? Hath chosen. Direct object? You. To salvation. Notice, not to opportunities. Not to chances. Not to possibilities. He hath chosen you to salvation. And then he even tells us how. Through sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification means to be set apart. That's the whole idea of holy, is to be set apart. Set apart from what is wicked. Set apart unto all that is good. There's a negative and a positive to it. We are set apart for God. Now, my mother used to have a, a number of uh, sets of dishes in her home. I'm sure some of you ladies can relate to that. <clears throat> you have dishes and then you have dishes. You've got special dishes. If I went over, after I was married, if I went over to visit my mom and dad and had dinner with them, I usually had dinner on the regular dishes. But if I came with my wife and my children, very often my mother would put the special dishes out. She'd take those special ones out. Because those very special people were there. It was a, a special occasion. Now, you, you ladies understand that, don't you? Yeah. On special occasions, boy, you pull out the dishes. Yeah. There's the other dishes. They're common. Now, what is it about those dishes? They're special. And so you have them set apart. Until such time as you're ready to use them according to your purpose. God has a people that He sets apart. By the work of His Spirit. That's what it's saying right here. Through the sanctification. Through the setting apart of His Spirit. Who maketh thee to differ, says Paul. Who makes you different? In other words, why are you sitting here tonight, hopefully, drinking in the Word of God, and at least enjoying the Lord's Word, if not the presentation, Drinking in the Word of the Lord and loving that instead of out partying tonight. Or just out uh, working in your rose garden this evening. Some other special thing you'd like to do. Why are you here? Is it because you're smarter than anyone else? Is it because you have wisely stumbled onto the path of life and everybody else is still just groping around out there, not quite as sharp as you? Brethren, who is the subject of all of these verses? It is God. And who distinguishes one between the other? It is God. The very word chosen means out from among others. 
Sisters, when you go shopping, men, when you go shopping, <clears throat> ladies, you're perhaps looking for canned goods, and you go in there, and, and there are multiple brands of green beans. You know, there's never just one kind. But you go in, and for whatever reason, price, sale, husband's preference, whatever all the reasons that go into it, you select this one. And by the very act of taking that one, you leave the others. Men, you're shopping. You're looking for a new lawnmower. You're thinking about how much you have to, to cut. You're thinking about uh, how wide that deck is and how easy it's going to be to get the blades off of there and what kind of service you're going to get there. All kinds of ideas go into uh, this particular lawnmower. Primary, how much is it going to cost? Right? But whatever the reasons, the minute you say, I want the Dixon, and you choose that one, you have set it apart from the rest. You've taken it out from the others. Can the lawnmower say? Can the can of green beans say? Ha! It's all because of what I am. Of course not. It's all in the choosing. Amen. And the one who does the choosing. It's not in that which is chosen. Now, of course, I'm making a, all human analogies fall apart. If you press them hard enough, I'm, I'm comparing human beings to lawnmowers and cans of green beans. You understand that there's a difference. <laughs> but the point is the whole concept of what goes in to the selection and the fact that it's a taking out, a setting apart from the rest. And this is what's being told us in each of these cases. Set apart the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. You believe. And others live in their disbelief, their unbelief. And why do you believe? The sanctification of the Spirit. You've been set apart by the Spirit of God. He's opened your heart. He's opened your mind. He's opened your ears. And you believe. And all the praise and the glory is to Him and to His grace. That's what Paul said back in Ephesians. To the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise. True worship springs out of hearts opened by God. You don't have to have huge tomes of books to tell you, okay, now at this point in the service, do this. And then at that point in the service, do this in order to worship or to uh, work up real worship. Make sure you've got a sharp, spiffy-looking music leader and uh, knows how to get out there and get everybody worked up. Then you have worship. No, you have worship when you have hearts open to God in communion with God. You worship God when you realize your sins are washed away in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you want to come and sing amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Newton said it exactly right. I am found. He didn't say, and I found my way. He says, someone found me. And he knew what that was like. He was so wicked and so hated by the crew on his boat that when he fell over, they harpooned him through the leg to drag him back onto the boat. He was a wretch. When he said wretch, he wasn't speaking in hyperbole. You ought to read something about his life story. He was a low-down, if I may use this term in our context here, he was a scumbag. And he knew it. And he said, this is what I am. Amazing grace. And that's become the song that, if anybody knows a hymn of Christendom, it's generally that one. I could probably walk in just about any bar 
around here tonight and start singing it, and I'd probably get at least half the people there to be able to sing one or two verses of it with me. Why all this? I once was lost, but now am found. God, the subject, found the verb. Me, the direct object. Paul tells us here, he opened our hearts and brought us to him through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Here we have God's sovereignty and man's responsibility right there together. God sovereignly opening the heart, man repenting and believing the truth. That's why all the glory goes to God. Well, turn to Romans chapter 9. We looked at this passage a little bit last week. We're going to look at it a little more in depth this week. Now, I wish I had the time just to read straight through chapter 9, verse 1, all the way to the end of verse 11, uh, chapter 11. But I will satisfy myself with just doing greater portions of that this evening. But we read the whole, uh, let's see, from chapter uh, 9, verse 1 through verse 29 last week. I just want to point out several things this evening. Having read it, and I encourage you to go and read the whole chapter, uh, perhaps even tonight while this is still fresh in your mind, when you get home or within the next day or two, Paul begins by saying, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom is concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Well, that's a, that's a hearty amen as well. Now, <clears throat> I don't want to get too detailed tonight. I don't want to lose you. I don't know why, but sometimes in our midweek services, it seems like that's the time when we almost seem the most tired. And uh, wading into deep uh, theological arguments, sometimes kind of a little taxing on the mind. But may the Lord grant us uh, grace and uh, freshness of mind to think about some of these things here. There are those who say that this chapter has nothing whatsoever to do with the salvation of individuals. That this is not about personal election unto salvation. And there are several arguments. We're not going to go through all of them. But generally, there are two. And the most accepted one, or the one you hear, at least the one I've heard the most from other people who reject what we believe, goes something like this. That Paul is here about to go into a description of the historical destiny of nations. He's not talking about individual salvation. He's talking about corporate election. God's corporate election in the history of Israel. He chose Israel as His covenant people. And He he chose Esau to be the the head of a, a people. And so this is more of a divine history lesson. Not anything to do with salvation. And there are many that believe this. Now, this passage, they say, is not about anyone's eternal destiny. But it's Israel's history and her uh, significance as a chosen nation. Brethren, If we understand what Paul says just in the first five verses, we have to realize that the context that follows from chapter 9 through chapter 10 and into chapter 11 is not simply about the unfolding of Israel's history, so to speak, 
or even the temporal blessings that she should have had or didn't receive. What do we find here? What, what's Paul agonizing about when he says, I see the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness. Now, this is powerful. It's, it's an emotive. And he says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. Now, brethren, let me ask you. Uh, is it reasonable to you that Paul is saying, I wish that I were cut off for Christ because of my people's unfolding history? That doesn't, uh, that doesn't work together. They didn't get some of the temporal blessings because they broke the covenant. He wouldn't want himself cursed from Christ over that. He might weep over that. He might say, I'm, I'm broken up about that. He wouldn't say, oh, that I were cursed for Christ from the, for them. Brethren, this is his heart burning. What's it about? Well, look at chapter 10. Now remember, when the scriptures were written, there was no chapter 9, there was no chapter 10. This was a letter. There was no verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 11, 12, 13. It was a letter. This was added, the, the numbers were added much later on. And uh, the, the chapter numbers and, the, and the, the, verse, the verses. And sometimes the division actually stop the thoughts that are being carried out. And this is one of those places where that happens. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. And imagine that it isn't chapter 10, verse 1. But continuing the unfolding of his letter. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they'd fulfill their historical destiny. That isn't what it says. It says that they might be saved. This is what he's unfolding. When he says that I were accursed for Christ, uh, excuse me, accursed from Christ for their sake, he's saying if there were some way that I might be lost, that they might be saved. That's the burning desire of my heart. Now, Paul, there are great theological arguments about that. Did Paul know what he was saying? Did he really mean it? Is this just hyperbole? Well, the, the point is. Brethren, listen to his heart. He is in agony over his lost brethren. That's the tone. That's the context. And it's all through uh, these chapters. He says, For I bear them, verse 2 of chapter 10, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What are we talking about? Salvation. They're lost. They're in their own works salvation, instead of in God's perfect salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Then he goes on a little bit further, and he says this, <clears throat> verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. What's the context? Salvation. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. You are not saved by the works of the law. Ever. And your, the works of the law don't keep you saved. You are saved by faith alone, grace alone. Or if you prefer, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ. No man has been saved ever by any other way than faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's argument. At uh, Romans chapter 4. What did Abraham know? What did Abraham discover? Abraham believed God. 
and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Verse 11, For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Who's they? The Jews? That, of course, applies to anyone else. But this is why he's agonizing. His own brethren don't believe. They're trying to be right with God by the works of the law. Now, brethren, properly understood, law and grace are not enemies unless you're trying to be right with God by the law and then the law damns you. There are those who make law and grace enemies as such. And we don't want to get off into an extended discussion of this. But the point is this. We are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You are never and you will never be saved by the works of the law. This is what the church has struggled and wrestled with. And that, that very issue is being debated once again. But the whole point, why are we talking about this? I'm not chasing rabbits. Israel was trying to be right with God by the works of the law. They were going about to establish their own righteousness. There is one righteousness that God receives. It is perfect righteousness, and it is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> he goes on to speak of their unbelief in verse 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Have they not heard? Yes, their sound went out into all the earth. He goes on to talk about their unbelief again. What's the context of 9, 10, and 11? Salvation. Not the unfolding of the history of Israel. And it's not simply corporate election, uh, which we'll get to in just a few moments. Look in chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away His people? Now, we're talking about the very issues of salvation, which you're talking about casting people away or having them as your possession. God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. <clears throat> now, notice down in verse 5, he says, Even so then, using himself as, as an example of this, he says, Even so then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. God's choice by grace. We've had that grace spelled out for us in Ephesians 1. We've had that grace spelled out for us in 2 Thessalonians. Last week we saw that we've had that grace uh, laid out before us in Romans chapter 8. For whom He did foreknow, He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. Here it is. Again, <clears throat> and he goes into the fact that, uh, that they have stumbled. Uh, but that that stumbling is the blessing to the Gentiles. Well, what blessing have the Gentiles received because Israel stumbled? Salvation. Salvation is gone unto the Gentiles. Brother, that's why we're here tonight. Though the glorious salvation of God burst past the boundaries of Israel and went out and found all the, the wild olive branches and grafted them into the, 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 the good olive tree. And it tells us that it's all by faith. That's how we stand before God. In verse 26, And so all Israel shall be, what's the word there? Saved. Now, that's a little bit of 
an extended uh, introduction to say that carefully read, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a unit about Paul speaking of his agony for the salvation of Israel. And the concept of salvation is through all three of those chapters. So for those who want to circumvent the idea of election unto that salvation, they've got to have some other kind of election. So what they say is, well, God's choosing Israel. That's true. It's just that it's not the whole truth, as we'll see. So... All of these contexts show us salvation. We go back to chapter 9 and we'll see this unfold in that chapter as well. Look with me at verse 9. Excuse me, at verse 8. It says, no, as a matter of fact, let's let's back all the way up to verse 6. I think this is worth pointing out, taking a little time to say. It says, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Now stop and think, just for a few moments. What does he mean by the word taking effect? He says, for they are not all Israel, who are of Israel. Now he's going to explain himself. You see, he's just told us that Israel had God's word, his covenants, his promises. The argument is being set forth that if we're saved by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Scriptures plainly declare to us, then what and how do we deal with Israel because it seems like God's finished with Israel? How can the wonderful promises of Romans 8 and His electing love mean anything to us if God made some promises to Israel and look at them now? You follow that? Is that clear? Well, Paul is going to answer that. And that's what chapters 9, 10, and 11 are all about. That actually, this falling away of Israel was part of God's wonderful purpose so that the gospel could go out to the ends of the world and people be brought in to that good olive tree, into the salvation and the promises that God has given. This is what Paul is agonizing about and yet rejoicing in at the same time. He says it doesn't look good for Israel right now, but God's going to save all Israel before it's all over. The graft-in branches and the branches that He left in the tree. And all together, there's God's Israel. Now, so the, he's, he's saying the Word of God has taken effect. He's going to tell us a little bit later on. He says, I'm an example of it. God's got a remnant. There are those who do believe. He hasn't thrown us off. I'm here. That's what he's saying. Now, he says, now, neither because they are the seed of Abraham, meaning the physical descendants, are they all children, meaning born of God. This is his argument that not all Israel is Israel. Not everybody that's a physical descendant, not everybody that's a Jew, is saved because he's a Jew. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Ah, particularism. A distinction of persons that God is making here. That is, he explains... They which are the children of the flesh, meaning born of God, of, of Abraham's uh, tribe, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. God made a promise to Abraham, and all those who have Abraham's faith are Abraham's true children, because they have faith like their father. That's here, and it's in Galatians as well. Now we're covering a lot of ground very fast. 
But the point is simply to say, this is not about just the unfolding of the history of a nation. This is about salvation by God's electing grace. He says, But the children of the promise, the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come. Who's going to come? God. And Sarah shall have a son. Why did that old woman have a baby? Because God made a promise. For this is the word of promise. And then it says in verse 10, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, and then Paul stops and gives us a parenthetical thought, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. You see, he's explaining to us, this is a deep argument. It's three chapters long. You need to read it and think about it and study through it. But I'm giving you the highlights of what is moving Paul. I want my people to be saved. But God's promises are good. Just because those of you seeing what appears to be the defection of Israel doesn't mean that there's a problem with God's promises. He has chosen a people. And it's not just because someone was a physical descendant of Abraham. It's those that he has chosen that are the children of the promise. They will have faith like their father Abraham. That's the real Israel, is Paul's point. And when we're talking about the real, real Israel, brethren, we're talking about salvation. grace of God. It's not according to what the children have done, good or evil, but that God's purpose according to election might stand. Not of works. What was Israel's problem? They were constantly trying to be right with God by the keeping of the law. of him that calleth. Him, the subject. What's the verb? He calls. Now, let me press on. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The distinguishing grace of God. Not everyone that came out of Abraham is the true Israel of God. What shall we say then? And Paul knows exactly what he's just said. He just dropped a mind bomb on Jew and Gentile alike because he's just taken the issue of salvation and the ultimate destiny of anyone out of our hands and put it right where it's always been, in the hands of God. And so he says, now, what are we going to say to this? <laughs> How do we respond to something like this? Is there unrighteousness with God? Any of you thinking that? God a little unfair here? He says, God forbid. God forbid. For He saith, God says in Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And brethren, it could, be, it could not be any plainer. This is all in the hands of God. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Well, I'm just about out of time here, and I don't want to stop because I have more to do here. We'll, we'll just come back to it. But now, let's stop here and think for just a moment. What we have is an interesting parallel in these verses between this and what is said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. We've looked at that passage on several occasions. And I just want to remind you what it says. <clears throat> it says, 
who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now, what is he, what has he told us here? Well, he says in verse 11 of chapter 9, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Well, both of these passages refer to a call of God. That's why either one of these is chosen. It's the call of God. Both passages stress that that call of God has nothing to do with the works of those that are called. Look at that carefully. Both of these passages refer to the purpose of God. The purpose of God, calling, not according to works. Does that sound familiar? That's what we read in Ephesians. That's what we read in 2 Thessalonians. That's what we read there in, in we're reading now in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. It's what we're looking at here in Romans chapter 9. And then finally, both of these are decided before uh, the foundation of the world, or, or at least before human history. It doesn't say that in those words here in Romans 9, but it's before the children were born, before they ever came into existence. Now, let me take about five more minutes and then we'll stop. Look at uh, verse 22 and 23 here in chapter 9. Having said in verse 21 that the potter has power over the clay uh, to make the lump of one vessel either to dishonor or one to honor, he then says in verse 22, What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had afore prepared unto glory. Once again, pointing back, their glory is something that God has prepared afore. The words destruction are the words that Paul uses throughout his epistles for destruction eternally. And then finally, the word that he says glory here points to salvation. He speaks of vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, vessels of mercy, uh, which he had before prepared to glory. That glory is eternal life. In other words, who's the subject of all these verbs? Who's doing the preparation? When's he doing the preparation? Who's he applying it to? Those that he's chosen, the children of the promise, the children, the real children of Abraham, the true Israel of God. Those graft in. Who grasped? He did. Who chose? He did. Who predestined? He did. Who made us accepted in the beloved? He did. What's Paul's burning desire? That they might be saved. Chapter 9, 10, and 11 are about salvation. And it involves both a corporate election and the election of individuals. We'll take that up next week but having looked at the things that we have thus far brother I want our hearts to settle in to the word of God and realize that again John Calvin didn't come up with these things <clears throat> the Puritans didn't come up with these things they may have refined and helped our understanding along with some of these things by their wonderful handling of the word alone and their exegesis. But what we have to finally come to grips with is that it is God who hath chosen us in Him. Over and over the words elect, choose, chosen, chose. It is always us that are the direct object. It is always He that is the subject. And that's why all the praise and glory 
and honor goes to Him. He opened our hearts. He drew us to His Son. He made us to see our lost condition. He moved our hearts to lay hold of Christ. You repented. You believed. But even that very act was a mercy and grace of life springing up in your soul that God purposed for you to have. And brethren, that's why we can come together and say, Amazing Grace. Let's pray. Father, not one of us can keep your law in such a way that it would ever merit us everlasting life. No, if we attempt to stand before Thee on the basis of the law, we must be forever damned. The law stands before us pure, pristine, righteous, glorious, perfect and demanding, perfect harmony with itself. And none of us has it. But, O Lord, You've provided it for us in Christ. He walked in it perfectly. It was in His heart. He loved it and He walked in it. And, O Father, You gave us eyes to see that the only righteousness You receive is that which He won for us. We praise Your blessed name. Thank You for bringing us to You And we plead with you to bring more. Bring more and bring more. And in these days of darkness, and in these days of seeing our culture coming apart at the seam, bring in more and more, Lord. Bring more souls to the glory of Christ. The glorious gifts in the heavenlies. The blessings in Him. Bring more to lay hold of Him by faith. We ask you, Lord, to do these things to the glory and honor of thy holy name. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to His commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, 
that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.